So my first thesis is that citizenship in the contemporary capitalist state has become exclusionary and exclusive. And this paper really is about that, about the transformation and the modes of citizenship acquisition by migrants, different kinds of migrants in the contemporary capitalist state and the disproportionate burdens that are placed on some kinds of migrants and the disproportionate facilities and advantages that other kinds of migrants have. And so I'm going to say a little bit more about that, but before I start with the paper properly, I'm going to tell you a very short anecdote, personal anecdote, which is that about five years ago now, I was uh, having to renew my leave to remain in the United Kingdom. So I'm from Albania, I'm an immigrant in the United Kingdom, and at some point I realized that in two months' time my leave to remain expires and I'm at risk of deportation. And of course I have a family in the UK, I have children, but uh, I still am not a citizen, so I have this leave to remain. At which point I started making you know, all the necessary inquiries about what do I need to renew my leave to remain, so I realized, okay, first I need to get my biometric data. And so I spent a lot of time figuring out where the office was, uh, spent about 600 pounds trying to get the uh, fingerprints collected. Then I realized that I had to uh, assemble a whole bunch of papers to prove that my husband and I had been living in the same place for a number amount of years and that I had to prove sort of via emails and uh, you know, bills, contracts, anything that I could find in the house to show that I had not been living in fact elsewhere and that I had permanent ties to the United Kingdom. So this took about, I know, two, three weeks. At which point I was about a month before the expiry and I make a phone call to try and make an appointment to submit the paperwork. And when I make the phone call, I discover that there are in fact no offices anywhere in England where you could go because all the appointments had been booked. And so they tell me, so your first available appointment in the Croydon office, which is where everyone goes with an immigrant in London, is in September and my leave expires in, in end of May. So I said, what, what can I do? I'm going to be deported. I said, well, there's nothing you can do. Um, <laughs> you, can do uh, you can do a sort of fast track application, but even that, uh, even with the fast track application, there will not be appointments in Croydon because uh, Croydon is just the one where everyone goes, and so it's really crowded. So I do the fast track application, which was another couple of thousand pounds extra, and uh, I was told, you have to go to Scotland because that's the only place where there are still available appointments. So I go to Scotland and eventually this whole thing comes to an end. I managed by the skin of my teeth to renew my uh, leave to remain. And so I'm a happy uh, resident of the United Kingdom ever since, not a citizen yet. Except I discovered when I was uh, assembling all this paperwork that had I paid 10,000 pounds, I would have had, I could have asked for the officials to come to my home and collect my biometric information process all the paperwork for me. I could have had someone dedicated person who would follow my case and just facilitate everything and finish, wrap up the whole thing in 24 hours. So by the time the process was finished, I was, um, I had still spent about 4,000 pounds. So it's not that it was indifferent. And if I had spent from the beginning 10,000 pounds and all of this would have been avoided. But this got me thinking about how a certain kind of immigrant, and you know, I'm educated, I'm middle class academic, so I earned sufficient amount of money to be able to afford the fast track application, and of course I could uh, show that I had all the minimum income requirements in order to obtain the leave to remain and so on. But this got me thinking that if you're a certain kind of immigrant, then your access to citizenship, the path to citizenship, has a very, very different feature 
different properties from if you are someone who is on a low income, who has barriers of uh, linguistic access, trying to even understand how to make an appointment, operate a computer system where you fill the online form, finding out which numbers you need to ring in order to tell them that you can't in fact uh, make an appointment because all the appointments have been booked. Before that, you get a response by an answer machine or by someone who just repeats the same, I'm sorry, all the appointments are booked. And you say, yeah, but my permanent leave to remain uh, expires in two weeks. I'm sorry, all the appointments have been booked. But I am at risk of being deported. But I'm sorry, all the appointments have been booked. So all of this takes um, money and effort. And so my first thesis, which is that citizenship has become exclusionary and exclusive, really starts with these two trends. On the one hand, the fact that uh, the path to citizenship is extremely easy if you are a certain kind of migrant, and it's extremely burdensome if you're a different kind of migrant. So again, if you are someone with uh, income and with the ability to invest in the economy and who can make a case for uh, making a contribution into the um, country in which you wish to obtain leave to remain or citizenship, then the trend in a number of states is that there will be an accelerated path to citizenship. So in the United Kingdom, this takes the form of the what is called the Tier 1 Investor Visa Program, which gives you uh, an accelerated path to citizenship if you have the ability to invest over a million pounds in the British economy. Uh, in the United States, I think there is an equivalent of, again, there is a, million, a requirement of about investment of about a million dollars, and if you invest in rural areas, that goes down to about $500,000. I think in Canada, this program was going on for a while, but then was discontinued. You can correct me if you have more up-to-date information on this. In the United, in the European Union, there is, again, a path of accelerated access to citizenship for uh, investors, people who are property developers, people who have uh, the ability to, again, make a productive contribution to the economy. And there is even, in countries like Malta, the sale of passports. So literally, you pay 1.5, again, million euros, and you get a European Union passport, which gives you open access to a number of uh, countries. So that's, on the one hand, that is if you're very rich. And if you're very poor, it's the opposite. So what happens is that in the United Kingdom, for example, you have to take the life in the UK test, which proves that you are familiar with the national culture, that you know how to orient yourself, that you have a basic knowledge of the UK social and political institutions. I'll come to that in a minute. You also have to prove that you meet the linguistic requirements. Even if you're someone like me who has been teaching in higher education for years and years, you still have to go and pass an exam in which you sit in front of an official and they ask you, can you tell me what's your contents of your bag, or so you make sort of small conversation. Uh, so extreme, extremely intrusive. Um, tests and uh, also expensive tests because all of these things cost money. So taking a linguistic test costs money, taking the life in the UK test costs money, the application form costs money and so on. So all of these are measures, and I will return to this, that look very innocent on the face of it. What's wrong with asking people to pass the linguistic test or what's wrong with asking people to take citizen uh, tests? But I want to argue that they place disproportionate uh, burdens on some people, and especially if we contrast that trend with the other trend, which is how easy it is for the rich, then we really see that citizenship has become, as I say in my first thesis, exclusionary and exclusive. So my second thesis that is connected to that is that citizenship has lost its emancipatory value. And what do I mean by that is that uh, the discussions 
around this mode of accessing citizenship by the rich and by the poor seem to neglect the fact that if we think of citizenship in those terms as a good that can be bought or sold or exchanged as a commodity, as a commodity we uh, forget that citizenship is in fact a process through which we fight for our political rights. And that's what citizenship has been historically. It's a sort of, it's connected to an understanding of citizenship that is dynamic, that is process oriented and that is activist and that sees citizenship as the process through which the expansion of political rights takes place. And so this trend of making citizenship conditional on being bought and sold and exchanged or commodified in this way, I think undermines this alternative uh, historical and democratic understanding of citizenship as a process-oriented and activist one. And so it seems that it emphasizes one thing at the expense of another thing, which is the emancipatory value of citizenship. It basically, uh, I think, turns citizenship into a kind of static good, again, that can be exchanged and bought and sold, and it does so at the expense of political action that is coupled with a different understanding of uh, citizenship. So my third, my third thesis that is connected to the second one is that citizenship consolidates the class character of the state. What do I mean by saying that, that the state has a class character? Saying that the state has a class character is equivalent, in my understanding, to saying that the state has lost the ability to provide the platform through which political compromises between different social groups are made. So, for example, one understanding of democracy is that democracy is the process through which different social groups come to an understanding of the terms under which they will run life in common. And if we understand these transformations of citizenship, and if we think of citizenship as something that has moved away from this uh, politically active understanding to one where citizenship is commodified, then the state has lost the ability to provide the platform through which different social groups interact with each other and becomes instead representative of the interests of a particular social class. And that's what I mean when I say that citizenship so understood strengthens and consolidates the class character of the state. Connected to this is my fourth thesis, which is that we no longer live in democracies, if we ever did, but in oligarchies. So when citizenship is bought and sold, instead of being a tool of political emancipation, it becomes a tool of domination and oppression. Because democracy, as the ideal that everyone has a share in ruling and being ruled, is sacrificed at the expense of a mode of political engagement in which the rich few make the rules for the rest of society. And that's exactly the classical definition of oligarchy. So if we think about the paradigmatic classical understandings of democracy, the rule of the many, the rule of the people who take turns in ruling and being ruled. Oligarchy, on the other hand, is the rule of the few, and typically in Aristotle and Plato, the rule of the few who have wealth and power. Then if we understand the acquisition of citizenship in those terms, and we emphasize how citizenship is a lot easier to acquire for the rich, then we understand that democracy is progressively being eroded in favor of a transformation of democracy into a form of oligarchy through which a rich minority controls political power and also appropriates the means through which one accesses and exercises political power. Connected to that is my fifth thesis, which is that the market controls the state and not the other way around. So instead of being a tool through which to temper the excesses of the market, as a democratic state is responsible for doing, and instead of being a tool through which we assert the priority of democratic decision making, 
When citizenship is bought and sold, it turns into a commodity like every other commodity that is exchanged in the market. And so when there is no status good, there's no other good that stands above the market in this way, then the state is unable to control the market. The state becomes itself a provision of goods that can ex be exchanged like commodities, like every other commodity. And so instead of taming market power, the state seems to surrender in front of it. Sixth thesis. Citizenship used to depend on property and money qualifications. And my sixth thesis says that it still does. So citizenship can be easily sold to the rich and has to be paid for by the poor. And remember the anecdote that I started with, which is that you have to pay for all these things. You have to pay for the test. You have to pay for the application form. You have to pay for the phone calls that you make if things go wrong. And these, all of these costs, when they add up, are not negligible. They're not symbolic costs. They're significant costs, and they are disproportionately burdening some people. In fact, authorities tend to acknowledge that this cost is not negligible. In the United Kingdom, I don't know how much you've heard about this in Canada, a few months ago, there was a scandal called the so-called uh, Windrush scandal, which was um, what happened was that uh, there were a number of uh, citizens of the British Empire that had arrived as, uh, as subjects at that point of the empire to the center in the 60s and 70s as part of the kind of wave of migration that was encouraged by the British state, a number of these citizens, a number of these subjects of the British empire had not uh, registered for documentation because at that point it was not a legal requirement to have, for example, ID, to have particular forms of identification, but they had as their birthplace states that are now independent states like Bangladesh or what have you, or Caribbean countries and so on. And what happened a few months ago was that as a result of the new turn against immigrants in the United Kingdom, where again, uh, every, with every change in the political system, there is emphasis that you know, we have increased the income requirements, we have increased the uh, do documents that are required for someone to prove that they're entitled to leave, to remain, and to citizenship. A number of uh, citizens or, or British subjects from this generation were required to provide these documents, and they just didn't have them. That meant that they didn't access, for example, medical facilities, they had no right to pensions, they suddenly found themselves stripped of any rights. And of course this caused a big scandal, and on the wake of this scandal, called the Windrush scandal, one of the concessions that the British government made was to provide access to citizenship, a kind of accelerated path to citizenship for these immigrants, by waiving the fees that were typically associated to the demand of registering for permanent leave to remain, or permanent citizenship. So this suggests that the authorities themselves were sensitive and aware of the fact that there were costs to this process and that these costs were costs, that people were burdened by these costs. And they just decided in the case of the Windrush generation to make an exception and to say, well, since you've been contributing and you lived in the United Kingdom for such a long time, then we will not require all of this. But the idea behind it, which is the, the idea that kind of drives my, my sixth thesis, that citizenship depended on property and money qualifications, shows that this was still the case. And the exception, in a way, showed that the rule was applicable um, throughout. So making citizenship conditional on purchase or on paying fees to access it is, I think, a return to the days in which wealth and money qualifications and property qualifications determined who was entitled to exercise political <laughs> rights, including the right to vote. My seventh thesis is that nationalism does the dirty work of capitalism. <laughs> and this is connected to um, the ways in which the low-income immigrants or the non-super-rich the non immigrants, the 
uh, are required to prove that they have the ability, for example, to pass linguistic or civic competence tests in order to, again, qualify for citizenship. I think asking immigrants that they prove these things, that they prove that they have linguistic competences and that they have civic competences, collapses a kind of progressive, politically active and uh, emancipatory understanding of what citizenship is and what political rights are for into a kind of ethno-cultural counterpart. So this is what I mean, and I will elaborate a bit more on this when I say that nationalism does the dirty work of capitalism, because it reduces a kind of universal, inclusive ideal to a particularistic and exclusionary one, to one that is reduced to a particular ethno-cultural understanding of what the political community is. So if you fail the civic integration test, then you are not entitled to be a citizen. And what happens is when you're not entitled to be a citizen, when you failed to prove that you are a worthy member of the political community, is that you are still cooperating in the labor market of that community. So you're still being exploited. You just don't have access to the political rights that would enable you to fight your exploitation in the labor force. And so it seems to me that what happens in this case is that this particular understanding of citizenship, this ethno-cultural understanding of citizenship, is basically supporting the kind of exploitation in the labor market that takes place independently of these processes. So ethno-cultural citizenship supports labor exploitation, and that's what I mean when I say that nationalism does the dirty work of capitalism. And this is a return to the days in which laborers, workers, contributors, productive contributors to the political community people who spoke only dialects, people who couldn't read and write, people who didn't have basic education were disenfranchised, were excluded from the right to vote. And so that meant that in the labor market they could still be exploited, but they were denied the political rights that would give them a voice in this um, process of fighting exploitation. And so citizenship tests, including the linguistic and civic understandings, even the minimal ones of, civic, uh, of these tests, turn basically this progressive understanding of a political community, which is a community through which political forces come together and, and interact and find ways of sharing uh, government, into a kind of backward-looking and conservative ethno-cultural understanding of the political community. They are premised, these tests are premised on the priority of inherited linguistic and conventional norms, civic norms, that need to be internalized before one can establish oneself as a member in good standing of that political community. This number eight is that citizenship in the capitalist state entrenches structural marginalization. So in the past, the struggle for citizenship and the battle for the expansion of the franchise, again, were part of an active fight for the progressive inclusion of previously marginalized groups. So, poor people, workers, women, people in the colonies. And in contrast, current citizenship policies reify these exclusions and entrench the divisions of class, gender, and race that lie at their root. So citizenship consolidates the divide, uh, or current citizenship, current ways of accessing citizenship, consolidate the divide between people who are seen as deserving to belong to the political community and those who are seen as second-rate members who can't show how they satisfy the criteria for being citizens. And again, uh, as the recent Windrush scandal in the United Kingdom shows, this also proves that instead of being a tool through which to protect vulnerable citizens, as were the Windrush generation of citizens, citizenship further entrenches and consolidates their marginalization. The Windrush generation were already marginalized, they were already uh, 
subjects of the British Empire, so they had been excluded and disenfranchised because they were of a different race, because they were uh, they belonged to the periphery, they were um, co they were, belonged to communities that were being colonized, and so on. And what happens is that again, their structural marginalization comes at the fore, and we see that they never were able to be included in the political community. So. The next three theses are um, a way of thinking, are more in a way of political reflection on, on all of this. So up to here, it's a, it's a reflection on the character of democracy and the comparison between democracy and, and oligarchy. Um, my thesis nine is that citizenship was only emancipatory, if it ever was emancipatory, and we can discuss this, when social democracy was the mean to fight capitalism. So the hope of traditional social democracy in the early 20th century was that democracy would bring the abolition of class government and that the right to vote would make citizens virtual partners into a kind of cooperative enterprise that would advance the good of the political community as a whole. And if one reads Edward Bernstein, who I will quote shortly, this is the conception that one gets. And this is one, what one obtains from reading texts that emphasize how finally the fact that the workers were entitled to vote and that there was a political route to socialist emancipation meant that one could uh, abandon a certain reflection that insisted too much on the class character of the state. So as Bernstein puts it in the preconditions of socialism, the parties, this is a quote, the parties and the classes that support them soon learn to recognize the limits of their power and on each occasion to undertake only as much as they can reasonably hope to achieve under the circumstances. And this was in a way the driving slogan for the rationale for social democracy. This is what justifies social democracy, is the ability of the classes that fight each other to actually reach a compromise in the political community thanks to an understanding of the political community and the political rights as something that is accessible to everyone and through which everyone can be on the path to <coughs> political emancipation. It seems to me, though, that the context of this optimistic assessment of the emancipatory value of citizenship was precisely this inclusionary ideal of citizenship as potentially open to everyone unconditionally. So this was the beginning of an age where the barriers of property, literacy, and technical expertise were being increasingly removed as a result of political mobilization to expand the franchise. Now, the conditions for this optimistic assessment, if it was ever justified, seem to me to be no longer in place. Uh, in fact, what we find is precisely the reverse. So if in the golden age of expansive citizenship, democracy promised to kind of heal the political community from profound and lacerating social conflict, in the age of restrictive citizenship, the struggle can no longer be mediated by the institutional political channels of the state and of political participation. Because once citizenship becomes again a good that is only accessed by the few or that can be bought and sold that is conditional on income and wealth and competence, linguistic or tests or civic and so on, then citizenship becomes again a good for the restricted few. And so the all-inclusive ideal of democracy on which the optimistic assessment of the possibilities of social democracy that Bernstein was making looks like an empty promise all over again. So thesis number 10 is that reviving democratic politics requires overcoming capitalism and not restricting migration. While in theory uh, still being paid, paying lip service to an emancipatory ideal of citizenship, progressive Democrats around the world are surprisingly silent on the issue of migration 
when it comes to it, and also on the exclusionary tendencies that contemporary trends of accessing citizenship brings. So neither social democratic official policy papers nor left parties' electoral manifestos seem to show any concern with finding measures that could counter these trends when it comes to citizenship acquisition. So the collapse of civic politics into the ethnopolitics that I've been talking about and the reduction of the universal progressive ideal of citizenship into a kind of particularistic and conservative one is not a trend that is countered by social democratic parties in Western states much. And it seems to me that what is essential when it comes to policy commitments by uh, the left, by social democratic parties of this tribe, is precisely to U-turn on the way in which they have articulated access to citizenship policies. Often one finds a certain unease from social democratic parties in discussing issues of migration. And part of the reason for that is to do with the electoral incentives, with the fact that one needs to create a co coalition that is able to win elections. Who votes in the elections? Those who are already citizens. So how does one make an argument for enfranchising those who are not citizenship? It seems that there's very little electoral payoff. And so when one thinks of political parties as election-winning machines, then there's very little incentive to turn to have a U-turn on policy commitments. But it seems to me, and this is one of the cases where political theory contributes to, to policy making, you know, we're often asked what, what, does, what does this mean in policy terms, and you know, all your discussion about democracy and equal access to citizenship and so on, seems to me that in this case there is very easy or at least very straightforward measures that one could propose, scrapping citizenship tests, scrapping linguistic barriers on access, taking away means-tested uh, policies, taking away income requirements for family reunification or for accessing uh, leave to remain of a certain kind, eliminating practices that commodify citizenship um, as a whole. Okay, so the thesis, the 11th thesis is then that the problem is capitalism and not culture. So again, the traditional pragmatic reliance of the left on national democracy to mobilize support for its causes seems to me to have reached an impasse. Citizenship policies and the current restrictions on the integration of migrants are only one of the prisms through which we can look at the, we can observe the transformation of the democratic state into an oligarchic elite project. And aligned with this regression is the degeneration of the universal ideal of citizenship into a tool for the oppression of minorities. So the problem in this case is not just the existence, and this is why I say the problem is not culture, because the problem here is not the existence of boundaries that are territorially defined and demarcate one culture from another. It seems that you can share the same culture and have differential access to citizenship, as in the case of the Windrush migrants that I've been referring to, or you can be a Saudi Arabian billionaire investing in London, and then the fact that you come from a culture that is typically thought to be stigmatized doesn't matter because class here seems to matter more than more than that. And so uh, the problem is not that territorial boundaries entrench cultural divisions, but that capitalism produces divisions of a certain kind. And again, the problem isn't here, or is not just that borders are more open or more closed, because the problem is the border within as much as the border without. So uh, the problem, again, as I see it, is that exclusions both within the state and between states mutually support each other and that are directly serving the purpose of this project of making citizenship a commodity that is being uh, bought and sold. And it seems to me that the practice of selling citizenship and treating it as a commodity in this way tells us a kind of important story about the way in which, on the one hand, nationalism and capitalism are aligned, and so, as I said earlier, the way in which nationalism actually supports the um, capitalism, 
but also a very important story about the progressive undermining of the allegedly democratic state, as again in the sort of social democratic promise. And insofar as we don't challenge that story, insofar as we don't show the link between culture on one hand and capitalism, or national culture and nationalism on the one hand, and capitalism on the other, we will see that uh, the uh, exclusion, the restriction of citizenship to the few and the practice of commodifying citizenship is not just bad for migrants and for the migrants that happen to be excluded, but is bad for everyone who believes in the democratic project as a whole. Thank you. Thank you.